welcome to Stoke Meter. We, oh my goodness, I can't tell you. We, we've had this pre-story uh, with Scott Miller. Scott Miller is probably one of the most enthusiastic individuals that you could ever meet. And his quick wit has been cracking us up <laughs> for the last couple of minutes. Now, if you don't know who Scott Miller is, you should and you will uh, after this. <laughs> and I'm hoping you were all watching this on the video portion of it. But he is a keynote speaker. He's also a number one best-selling author, as well as a podcast uh, host for the Franklin Covey On Leadership Program, which is quite frankly, one of the best leadership podcasts that I've, I've ever listened to. The, the amount of guests that you've been able to, to have over the years, my goodness, what an inspiration. I can't, I can't even imagine how stoked that you get <laughs> in, in speaking with all these individuals. But he's also the creator of Ignite Your Genius, which is a career coaching, as well as Mess to Success. Now, I'm really going to go and get into that stuff. Look at all those awesome books back there. So as you can tell, a very accomplished individual, but just a very good person. So Scott, welcome to the show. Maurice, I'm happy to be here. Gary, thank you. I'm going to ask you, Maurice, could you try to bring some energy to this conversation? This yeah, I know, I man. I've been, I've been lagging. <laughs> Oh, oh. You are my friend and energy infuser, Gary, as well. I think you will balance him very nicely for the benefit of all of your listeners as well. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you for the spotlight and the platform. Delighted to be here. Oh, it's so fun. Well, you know I'm geeking out about everything you've done. I, I shared with you that I was in leadership development in corporations, and, and it's not my main forte now, but I still do it uh, on the side. And it's it's just amazing to see the how leadership has transformed and before i i guess before i even go there i've i've got to i've got to go back to a leader in your life that i really appreciated listening about and that was well it wasn't even listening it was a read it was your mom your mom was man i wish everyone can experience the type of moms that probably all the three of us have had but when I was reading this, she had you going and, and, and busting doors and asking to mow the lawns and such. And I remember the, the, the thing that made me laugh most was while all my friends were water skiing and everything on the weekend, I was mowing lawns. And, but I've got to ask you that. So again, that was years ago. Um, what, how did that develop not only your work ethic, but your ability to to influence other individuals, because at a young age, you had to learn how to negotiate, how to talk with individuals. And how has that influenced? How did that influence later on in life? Welcome to therapy with Gary Maurice. <laughs> Scott Miller from Utah. As we process the pain from his early maternal upbringing. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure where you were going with that, Maurice. I'd forgotten I wrote about that, but it's, a, it's true. I was born and raised in central Florida in an upper middle class family in the 70s and 80s. My family was fairly traditional. My father worked for a defense contractor, you know, 32 years. Yeah. My mother was a full-time stay-at-home mom with my brother and I. And uh, you're absolutely right. One of the values that my parents instilled in us was the value of hard work. Right. And so from the age of, you know, probably 12 or 13, we were forced to go out every day, <laughs> either after school or most of the day on Saturday and knock on doors. Now, you know, take a 14 year old 
Scott Miller, I probably weighed 18 pounds wet, <laughs> right? It's the self-confidence of an 18-pound 14-year-old. And I'm walking around knocking on doors of people. I have no idea they are, who they are. They were always 84-year-old lovely widows that opened them. And, you know, I was saying, can I do some work for you? And here I am trying to negotiate the conversation, the awkwardness. And they said, sure, mow my lawn for $3. Of course, it was four feet high, right? And so anyway... After lying to my parents about, oh, yeah, I knocked on 45 doors. I knocked on probably three. Uh, you know, we built this discipline where I had dozens of yard jobs, washing cars, mowing lawns, washing windows. Every one of them took advantage of me, quite frankly. But all through junior high school, all through high school, we were doing just that. I mean, we, my brother and I, were separately raking and mowing and weeding and planting bulbs and washing cars and on and on. And that course led to full-time jobs in college while I went to school full-time. And the point is, I think that work ethic was enormously valuable in who I've become as an yeah. adult. Because I do think that one of the defining themes across all of the mentors in my life, all the guests mm -hmm. that I've interviewed on my podcast for Franklin Covey, be it Matthew McConaughey, General McChrystal, Deepak Chopra, you name it. They've all got this red thread of, you know, they're smart and they're charism charismatic, but they outwork everybody. Yes. John Gray, Jack Canfield, they work everybody. Yep. Doris Kearns Goodwin, Stephen Covey, they just work super hard. And so I sometimes am mocked about how much emphasis I put on hard work, not necessarily 200 hours a week and not having yeah. out of control life balance, right? I mean, you have to keep the most important thing, the most important thing. As Dr. Covey would say, you know, um, failure in the home yeah. isn't, you know, an option. You, you have to have success in your home. It can't take the place of any failure in other parts of your life. But it, it, my mother did have an instrumental impact on my pain as an adult, <laughs> on my success as a professional. Thanks, mom. Where did that, where did that come from? Did you know where, like with your parents, how did they, yeah. wh where did that come from? Because there's usually a story behind that as well. You know, I think there is. I think it's round two of therapy. My father's <laughs> father, my dad's dad, died when he was 10 of cancer in Minnesota. Oh, man. Oh. And his twin brother caught polio at the age of 14. Oh, come oh, on. Really? 10 years in an iron lung and died. Oh. So as a result, my father was kind of raised with no parents. His father died when he was 10. His mother spent 70 years in mourning. Wow. My mother's parents in Mississippi, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida were alcoholics. Were always on the run. I hear one of them took their life, but we don't talk about it. So my mother literally was living in the YWCA at 14 years old, kind of raising herself. Wow. So I think literally in my household, it was stability amongst everything. Stability mm -hmm. before pain, before joy, yeah. before love, before happiness, before physical touch. I was raised in a loving family, but quite frankly, it wasn't, it was, it was a stable family, right? It was meatloaf seven days a week, no top ramen. <laughs> and no filet mignon. So I do, I mean, metaphorically and literally, but I think my parents were raised in such unstable environments, my mom more than my dad, that they had to make sure that they were super responsible and worked hard and make sure that there was always enough. There was never, there wasn't a lot of um, extras, mm -hmm. but we always had clothes. We always went to church. We always went to school. We always took a vacation a year. It was always a holiday in kind of vacation, right? Back in the seventies. Yeah. And so I honor my parents for being transition figures 
and for, were raised in very unstable families. One for my mother's situation could have been changed. My father, my my father's was unchangeable. Right. But I appreciate the role that they played in instilling hard work in us and creating stability in both of my brothers and my lives. Wow, man, that's deep. I never told that story out that, loud. That is such a fantastic <laughs> awesome. story, though, because I think the assumption is when they look at all the books behind you, all the incredible people that you have been able to speak with, to influence, and then all the people that you've influenced since that time, it's a general assumption that, hey, man, life has been pretty awesome all the time. And all of the different trials that were generationally before you and now, good grief, man, there's something it goes, it goes in light with something that Matthew McConaughey said in one of your, your uh, interviews. And he said, you have to prepare to have the freedom. Uh, that that just struck me, man. <laughs> it just struck me. He's and, wise. Yeah, he, I, he's, yeah, he's an odd duck, right? Uh, in a good way. In a good way. Yeah. But he was he was so gracious and and generous, and he said so many truth bombs. If you want to listen, <laughs> apparently his book Green Lights is extraordinary. Apparently, listening to the audio is much better than reading, which I haven't done. But Matthew McConaughey dropped a few dozen truth bombs in that interview. I agree. Go listen or watch that one. Oh, well, and I think the, the thing I think is interesting about that, and the reason that I asked that in the first place is, you know, it, it seems like that happens so many times where, you know, there is so much struggle, you know, kind of like say in a previous generation, whether it's a, someone immigrating to another country that doesn't speak the language or hardships like you're talking about. And there's a there's a there's an option there to either take the victim mentality and double down on my life sucks and my life is harsh. Or yeah. you know what? Yeah, I'm going to change it. I'm going to be a pioneer. I'm going to I'm going to teach my kids how to work. You know what I mean? And what a gift that they gave you moving forward. And you know, for now, your kids and everything else, man, and, you, and, there's and, a legacy. And Gary, to your point, we're all transition figures, right? Because yeah. now, yep. not only are my wife Stephanie and I providing stability for our kids, but we're mindful of all the things that we didn't have, like physical touch and happiness and joy and frivolity, right? And so we're trying to, you know, keep improving it. As we move forward, no doubt, they'll learn horrors from my parenting technique (laughs) and be a transition figure to their kid as well. Yeah, and it's funny. There's a lot of similarities between kind of your story and mine and life, and this isn't my story, but it's funny how that pendulum can swing back and forth, you know what I mean? Cause I'm kind of the same way. It, there was not, no, there wasn't any hugs, any of that type of stuff in my family. I knew I was loved, yeah. but there, that wasn't there, you know? And now I'm kind of over on the other side. My kids yeah, are like, dad, too. leave me alone. Go away. Okay. <laughs> me too, me too. I, I, I have three sons with my wife, Stephanie. They're seven, nine and 11. Do not do that. Do not have three boys in five years. Um, I regret I uh, I don't even like parenting, to tell you the truth. But there are schools. Like that. <laughs> the return <laughs> policy like kind of sucks on this kid thing, man. But like you, I kiss my boys all the time and hug them and rub them and touch them. You know, my oldest is twelve, right? It's his horror. It's his horror <laughs> experience. So, but I, and I do it in front of their friends, not gratuitously, oh, yeah. but I make sure their friends watch me hugging them and touching them, not in a way that diminishes them, but in a way that shows yeah. you're loved. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen this too, but like I came from, you know, th- probably the biggest relationship I had with my father was just a, a working relationship. What did you get done today? What did you accomplish? And so 
in some ways I feel like I haven't done justice for my kids because I haven't, I did push them as hard as I did, but at the same time, I also cherish that relationship. Do you see that with your kids too? I mean, are they out knocking doors looking for, for lawn mowing jobs? <laughs> Not yet, because I think my parents' love language was discipline. That was their love language mm -hmm, with me. Sure. And I probably needed some of that. And so I want my love language to be different with my children, but they're going to work. They're yeah. going to work. Uh, I think I, ha I had a very stable childhood. It wasn't a joy-filled childhood. But by lots of people, it was extremely joyful, right? But as I look back, my parents are both still alive, still married, still live in the same house they bought 60 years ago. So I'm enormously grateful to everything my parents poured into me. And they learned from their parents, and I'm learning from them, and so on. Our boys will work hard. But, you know, there's that, that fine balance, Gary, of you want to provide to your children all that you didn't have, but without spoiling them without yep. turning them into spoiled brats or entitled brats, right? And so it's this, it's this delicate line every day of mm -hmm. how do you give them opportunity that you didn't have, but give it to them in a way to where they come to realize, well, I have to earn this if I want to keep it. Yeah. I have to earn this if I want this in the future. And I, it's kind of fits and starts, right? And there's so many similarities to parenting and leadership, right? Not to patronize yes. people, but Parenting and leadership have remarkable similarities. There is, a, and bringing up that leadership thing, one thing that I always have enjoyed in organizations anyway is mentoring. Uh, and I mean, of course, I'm freaking up your, uh, your, your mentor mastership, uh, masterful mentoring, because when I look in an organization, I, it's funny because I've been consulting, it's ironic, I say it's not my primary thing, but in the last few months, I've been consulting heavily and they, they've lacked a lot of that mentoring aspect of it. And when I speak to them about, for instance, their family, I go, well, how do you teach your kids? <laughs> and all of a sudden, these different components come into mind. Well, have you done that with your employee? It might seem very elementary, but it's amazing when they start to implement some of those things to build that mutual respect. And so with that being said, the mentoring is such a big deal. I actually think if it's not part of a culture in an organization that it's setting it up for failure just because there's no true succession going along the line. I've seen, I've actually worked for companies that have done that. So when you, from, from your background, from what you yeah. learned from your parents, how much have, have you started to apply what you learned from your youth into this mentoring, into, I know it's an accumulation of a bunch of people that have, have done that, that mentoring, but what are some of the things that you have learned from these, these individuals and tie that in with your, with your own life? So the book you're referring to Maurice is called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, published mm -hmm. by HarperCollins, where I highlight 30 of the mentors on the on Leadership Podcast. With their permission, I write a story about a different transformational insight of each of them. Right. Uh, they all have been mentors to me, whether they know it or not, as have my parents. I, I think to your question around mentoring, even in organizations, it, it's the linchpin of great careers. Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody that's achieved their success on their own. And I think sometimes mentoring gets a little bit of a bad definition, yeah. especially post-pandemic, where we're working in hybrid and virtual environments. I I would give your listeners and viewers maybe a couple of tips is you should both be a mentor and you should both be a mentee, yes. regardless yes. of your age. Yes. And that doesn't mean that you have to go up three flights of stairs and ask the COO if she will be your mentor. Yes, that works. But I'll tell you, most of the mentors in my life 
they don't even know I'm alive. <laughs> like, I don't even know them personally. <laughs> These are people that I saw at a conference or I follow their blog or I listen to their radio program. Some of the people that had the most profound impact on me in my life, no kidding, they don't even know I exist. Yeah. So I'm writing a new book for HarperCollins called The Ultimate Mentoring Guide, mm. where companies can figure out how to use mentoring as a, as a career growth strategy, as a retention strategy, as a culture builder. Yeah. And because I think mentoring is a gift you give back. One of the other commonalities that every guest on the On Leadership podcast and in my book, which is the first in a series of 10, I just finished the <laughs> Master Mentors Volume 2. I'm writing now Master Mentors Volume 3. There'll be 300 mentors highlighted when it's done in seven years. Is not just their hard work ethic, is their abundance mentality, is how mm. these people inherently want to coach others and give back with no benefit to them mm. at all. No financial remuneration, no fame, no glory. No, they just want to pass on the yeah. insights they've learned from their successes and their failures. And I think mentoring sometimes can be a slippery slope because mm -hmm. mentoring isn't about sharing how you got where you are, how you did what you did. It's understanding and listening. What is the other person trying to create? What are they trying to get done? Yeah. And in your journey, are there any lessons that could help ignite that person's passions to diminish that person's fear? Mm -hmm. And so mentoring can turn into a little bit of, here's what I've done. And if I were you, I would, no, 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 not if I were you. It's you are you, what are you trying to accomplish? And how can I help to steer, to guide, to document, to unleash, to ignite, to question mm -hmm. what your path is going to be for you? Yeah. I think that mentoring book will do extremely well because anybody can be a mentor, whether yeah. you're 20 or whether you're 70. And everyone should be a mentee, whether you are 20 or whether you are 70. Yeah. So, so you just dropped a truth bomb on us. And <laughs> <laughs> the reason I say that, it, it, it's funny because I was just going to ask you, okay, you know, mentoring just seems like such a, oh yeah, I, I know what that is. It makes, you know, everybody knows what mentoring is. It seems so basic and so simple. But I was just about to ask you what you what your definition of mentoring was, and you just laid it out perfectly. Yeah. No, you know, because again, I think a lot of people misunderstand or just assume what mentoring is. In many ways, it really isn't what we think it is. And so, you know, as we start doing these uh, video shorts, I'm going to snag that and run with it. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm going to write down well, my Gary, time, my, Gary can, I add, can I add one more sentence to it? Absolutely. So. I have a lot of people that come to me that are part of a mentoring program in their company. Mm -hmm. And they're coming to me because perhaps they're using my Ignite Your Genius career coaching as the platform. And they say, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm 32 and I run the travel division and the company has put me as the mentor to somebody over in engineering. I know nothing about their career. And I say, it's okay. Because yep. there are between 12 and 14 roles that mentors play. But I'm going to look mm -hmm. off camera for a moment because I'm, I'm identifying them for this new book. You are the um, absorber, you're the challenger, you're the archivist, you're the distiller, the navigator, the visionary, the closer, the questioner, you're the reveal revealer, you're the curator, the connector, the activator, the soberist. Yes. You play all these roles at different times during the relationship and anybody can play those roles if you just know, oh, I see, right now I need to be the questioner or right now I need to be the navigator or the closer or the archivist. And I think being a mentor doesn't mean you've done what they've done. I mean, yeah. I could go to someone who's been a banker and learn how to be a florist just yep. from different ideas. Now, it might be best to go to a florist, but if you know the role you should be playing, most people can be a great mentor to anyone.
Yep. Yep. And well, you brought up another thing earlier on, and that is the abundance mentality. When I look at where leadership fails and, and especially mentoring, it's that scarcity mentality. I've got to take, I've got to take everything. And it just, it's so toxic. It, it, it just gets to the point where, where everything that's being done is for that individual, rather than how can I help out here? How can I help you progress? I saw you pulled your finger up. So <laughs> well, Maurice, I think you, I'm, I'm think, I think you're on something profound because as Dr. Covey popularized in his book, the seven habits of highly effective people, we either have an abundance or a scarce mindset. Mm-hmm. And I think people that have an abundance mindset, I don't think it's a personality trait. I think it's a cultural inculcation from them early mm-hmm. on in life. They were raised in an unstable family. Their mother or father perhaps had greed for some reason because of an insecurity they were raised with. Perhaps they were raised in the depression. I don't think people become scarce. I think people were born scarce and they learn to become abundant. They learn to become generous. They learn to have this abundance mindset. So when I find someone who is, has a scarcity mindset, I don't judge them. I, wonder, I, I think to myself, they were taught that by someone else. Wow. And it's a coping mechanism. Right. And I'm going to be a light, not a judge, a model, not a critic, and help them see the value of having an abundance mindset. It's usually they're protecting themselves from something because they've been told something true or untrue wow. by those who brought them up. And I'm going to pre-forgive them a bit yeah. and recognize that maybe I could help steer them more into an abundance mindset. Holy moly. So it's, all, so it's almost like it's a default state in a way. Oh, I think that, it is. I think it's a, yeah. I think it's a conditioned state by yeah. either their parent or their guardian or their grandparents or an early boss or an early teacher. Yes. They were taught to get theirs first. They were taught, you know, screw or be screwed. No yeah. one's ever screwed yeah. me in my entire life. Now, yeah. I don't let anybody screw me because I'm a smart person, <laughs> really, right? Right. But I believe that having an abundance mindset doesn't mean you take on a victim mentality or you mm-hmm. become a martyr or, you know, well, you get yours and if there's any left for me, okay. You no, know, that's called being a martyr <laughs> and a victim. And I'm not that. But right. having an abundance mindset, as you know, Maurice, just means, you know what? I think there's enough to go around. Yep. Now, that might be paper clips. That might be ink or toner cartridges. Yeah. That might be fame, credit, love, budget, attention, resources. Mm-hmm. But if you come into every engagement with, I'll bet there's enough to go around. Yeah. Then I think it's easier to take some risks on being abundant. Yeah, 100%. Man, you, you, another so called Coveyism, a paradigm shift just, uh, just occurred <laughs> because it's so easy to judge the other person based on what you see externally. And, and to, if, if they do have that scarce mentality or that selfish mentality or whatever, it's all, oh, that guy just stinks or that gal just stinks. Instead of really trying to understand where, where they're coming from. Good grief, man. When you, when you see all these, it just ties in all this wisdom. I'm, I'm amazed. But they're, they're, of course, it goes back to a number of our guests that we've had. We've had some pretty fun and incredible individuals. And I was so delighted to see that you wrote about something that they bring up on a regular basis. And that was being vulnerable. I think sometimes people have a scarcity mentality because they're hiding something or they're hoarding something or whatever it might be. But the most effective leaders that we've interviewed and, and just the guests in general have always been those individuals that are willing to, to, Hey, 
I'm not perfect. <laughs> Check me out right here. And when, when I saw the title, Own Your Mess, How Your Vulnerability Inspires Other, it just nailed me, man. It was like a one-two punch, like, boom, that's, that's what we're talking about. And of course, I, it, it was funny because I've, I've crossed paths with, Whit, um, with uh, Whitney Johnson when we were living back in New York, uh, she actually talked about one of my friends in one of her books, the ranch hand that she hired as, as part of her, uh, as part of her team. But uh, what was cool about vulnerability is something also what Whitney said is actually, you said that to Whitney's hyping our failures, man, hyping our failures. Holy moly. What an awesome concept. So, you know, I've got to get your thought on being vulnerable and about hyping your failures. And sorry, it took so long to get to that question. No, no I enjoyed listening to you. You, you like ignite my passions. So. <laughs> <laughs> Gary keeps me sane, and you keep me uh, passionate. Man, uh, I've never I, been accused I, of that. My entire thirty-year career has been in the leadership development industry. Perhaps uh, I shouldn't have been a leader of people. By the way, not everyone should be a leader of people. Not everyone should be a commercial airline pilot or an anesthesiologist, <laughs> and not everyone should be a leader of people. That's a whole different podcast interview. But if you're going to be a leader of people, then you have to recognize that vulnerability is a leadership competency. Just like reading a P&L, just like calculating EBITDA and supply chain analyses and everything else, vulnerability is a leadership competency. I wrote a, I wrote a book that did extraordinarily well a couple of years ago called Management Mess to leadership mm. success, 30 challenges to become the leader you would follow. It's the blue book behind me for those who are watching this on video. And it was kind of the first of its type in the whole leadership genre, because yeah. most leadership books, at least most of Franklin Covey's leadership books, wrap <laughs> up nicely in a bow. Welcome to life in Utah. And the fact <laughs> is that leadership is not easy. Leadership is messy. Life yes. is messy. Marriage is messy. Parenting is messy. No one's life looks as good as their Instagram portrays it. So I wrote a very vulnerable, <laughs> self-effacing book with, you know, kind of shared some horrors of my leadership journey. Nothing illegal or unethical, sometimes close, but never <laughs> I think the reason it did so well was because people recognized, oh my gosh, I almost said the same thing or I did the same thing. And, and so I'm super passionate about owning your mess. Because everybody's got messes going on in your life, and everybody knows your messes. Right. Your assistant, your partner, your supplier, your employees, everybody knows your messes, and they're talking about them. So why not just own them? Because, Maurice, when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. Oh, man. Now, yeah. not, not in like a gratuitous confessional, not in an open kimono discussing all your <laughs> – you, you have to have, you know, an inner dialogue and an outer dialogue, and sometimes I struggle with that. Right. You know, raised a Catholic, I'm pretty good at confessing everything immediately. <laughs> so I got to separate that from when it's appropriate in the environment when it's not. But let me tell you, I think when you're willing – to discuss what you're great at and what you're not great at. I mean, I, I'll talk to you. I mean, sometimes people that don't like me, and believe it or not, there's more than one. <laughs> I'll notice that they'll try to weaponize my weapons, my, my messes against me. Oh, well, Scott has ADD. Mm. Newsflash. Scott Moore <laughs> has ADD. That's all you got? That's it? That's it? You're trying to take me down with that? Good yeah. grief. You know, you get an F on that one. <laughs> so, my point is, you know, I think confidence flows out of humility. Mm, man. 
Confident leaders are capable of demonstrating humility. Arrogant leaders are not capable of demonstrating humility. I was not a very humble person for most of my career. And as I really realized how powerful vulnerability can be, because as a leader, when I would admit, you know, I get distracted easily. I like to, I like to fight fires. I love a good crisis. Yeah. I do my best work in a crisis. Mm-hmm. The adrenaline, the dopamine, the validation. And if one doesn't exist, oh, I'll cook one up. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's when I do my best work. And I'll talk about that openly in front of my team. So the team can say, Scott, is this a crisis or are you just bored? I'm just bored. Okay, thank you. And that's the kind of leader people want to work for. Yeah. I'm a competent person. I'm a trustworthy person. And I recognize that my personality can drive you crazy. So let's talk about it. But you know what? We're also going to talk about yours as well. Yeah. Be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. Mm-hmm. So I would say to anybody listening and watching, hang a lantern on your troubles before someone else does. Gary Maurice, I'm a stutterer, lifelong speech impediment, sometimes wow. debilitating. I've been to decades of speech pathology and speech therapy. I've had braces three times and Invisalign and headgear and retainers. I have two speech coaches. There are about 25, 30 mm-hmm. words I cannot say in public. It quadruples in the wintertime because of the cold weather. So if you ever want to ski with me, it'll be a very quiet day. I don't speak when I'm skiing because every word comes up. And I don't share this often, but in a safe setting, I will. So I speak about my stutter very freely because I think it empowers other people to recognize that they have challenges as well. And it's okay. I'm not embarrassed by it. I wish I didn't have a stutter and my stutter is not as strong as some people's and much stronger than others, but I've worked really hard to overcome it and manage it. And I've also worked hard to talk about it and to make it not an awkward burden, but almost like an asset to say, I got this going on. I also had shingles last month. And um, I also <laughs> you know, uh, probably drank more champagne than I should have last Saturday night. <laughs> the point is being comfortable with your vulnerability before someone weaponizes against you. But more importantly, to create a culture where others feel comfortable to own their challenges and messes as well. Oh my goodness. You're, th- this is, I am, I can't even tell you how amped I am. <laughs> Everything that you're, 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 you're sharing right here because I, I also I had a speech impediment. I can see it. It's okay. Yeah. No, it was, I had a speech impediment too. I couldn't say S is worth it to save my life or J's or any of that thing like that. And just to, just to hear you talking about that, it just relates so well. Uh, to, and I can, I can really, uh, connect with what you're saying. And it means so much to me. Uh, and you, you were talking about being a light, not a judge, right? It's, it's funny because my son came up to me and he goes, check this out. And he, he took this, the, the flashlight and he shined it on him like this, boom. Right. And it was so crazy because it highlighted him, but then he shined it everywhere else. And then it magnified everything else. And that's when you're sharing your vulnerabilities, that's what it seems like is that you are really sharing that, that light. It's amazing what that ability to be vulnerable can do as a leader for your people. And so, man, thank you for sharing that. That was huge. Let me tie something in here too is, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll this back to that scarcity versus abundant mentality. So by, by, by people sharing their, their, their issues and problems that they have, their struggles and that type of thing, they're, they're keeping it inside. And again, that, that scarcity thing, nobody wins with that. 
it just yeah. that now your your whether it's a speech impediment or a mental issue or whatever struggle is there's no healing you you basically are owning it and it's not going anywhere but if you can have an abundance mentality i i am a huge believer that one of the big fundamental concepts of a good mentor is a level of empathy and the only way you get empathy is by opening up and sharing <laughs> with the other person and the way that i'm going to explain that in this situation with you scott is as I read your books now, I'm going to get a whole nother level of understanding yes. that I would have not been able to get before yes. by what you've just shared with us. You know what I mean? And I, that's the stuff that gets me amped is, <laughs> you know, and, and, it, and the tides seem to be turning a little bit on leadership. It used to be that the only thing, I feel like leaders of the past were kind of that Instagram model that you talked about. <laughs> yeah. Right. You, you, it's, right. it's weakness if you show, you know, if you're a yeah. bad leader, if you show your, your, yeah. your struggles or anything like that. But now, you know, with that all ships rise mentality, whether you're mentoring someone or somebody's mentoring you, now everyone gains more out of that relationship. No, doubt. you've nailed it. You, you nailed it, yeah. right? We've heard this idea, the great resignation. I was interviewing Ariana Huffington mm. a week ago in the post and she renamed it the great reevaluation. Yes. We've heard it named 40 things since then, but wow. it's absolutely true. There's not a person in the world post-pandemic, hopefully post-pandemic, that isn't radically reassessing their values. Yes. What they want yes. to do with their precious days left. Do yeah. they need a ski boat or would they rather take an experience with their family? Yeah. What kind of organization do they want to work in and what kind of person do they want to work for and yeah. work with? And so... You know, I might rename it the great comeuppance between Me Too mm -hmm. and Black Lives Matter in the pandemic and the recession and all of that. There's been a massive comeuppance in leadership. Yeah. And companies aren't tolerating jerks anymore. People yeah. aren't tolerating jerks. Either you'll get sued or I'll just quit you. Where are you going to go? I don't know. What? Yeah, I don't know. I'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> so figure true. It out. Yeah, I'll figure it out. Yeah. And so people want to relate to their leaders that this gone is this hierarchy of this floor and this and that's over right i mean it's it's like horizontal now that doesn't yeah. mean that as a leader you don't hire and fire and have high courage conversations and give people feedback on their blind spots and hold yeah. them accountable when they don't deliver all of that i mean that doesn't change at all but how you relate to your people has to change dramatically leaders are going to have to demonstrate an unprecedented, le unprecedented level of individuality, of yeah. individualized leadership, because you can treat people differently and still treat people fairly and equitably. Because what Maurice needs out of Scott is different than what Gary needs out of Scott. Yeah. And I'm gonna have to stop phoning it in by just what I learned in a leadership course. And I've <laughs> got to figure out what are Maurice's passions and fears and joys yeah. and what is Gary's new values yeah. and new goals and new visions. It's going to place a level of pressure on leaders we've never seen in our generation or before. Yep. And it's going to be those leaders that have the adaptability and the emotional nimbleness, and to quote you, the empathy oh. and vulnerability that's going to bring about a whole new organization. And none of that is Pablum. Everything mm -hmm. I just said is absolutely true in companies right now. Yep. Yep. N that nimbleness is something that is, uh, along with that vulnerability, the nimble, the nimbleness is going to be huge. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a, in a consulting situation where they, they, they go, well, the process is this, the procedure is this for the love, stop. People aren't a process. They're not a procedure. Let's get down in the nitty gritty here. 
And to your point, that's where that comeuppance is. Uh, it, it's so, if, 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 they're, if they're wanting to change their culture, if they're wanting to impact people in the right way, we can't do these, these, uh, these prescriptions that are for the general masses instead of really yeah. going to that individual. And I, I'm, I'm thankful that you brought that up, man. <laughs> that, that yeah. was, and I, and I'm, sto I'm stoked to find the new norm. I think it's going to be yeah. fantastic. And I think when things crumble and you build back, it's going to be amazing. I think corporations yeah. are really going to see a lot of, of really positive change once this kind of struggle and this new norm is trying, you know, yeah. as we figure it out, because it is going to be more personable. It's going to be more relationship-based. Yeah. The carnage, the carnage that this pandemic has wrecked on our culture. I yeah. say that out of respect, right? I, I know two yeah. people who lost their lives. One of our board of directors lost yeah. their life. Yeah. Um, economically, financially, emotionally, that cannot be minimized. Mm -hmm. And the silver lining, Gary, to your point of this pandemic is it's a new world of work yeah. and it will all be rough. It'll be tumble. It'll, it'll, it'll swing to your point but the pendulum will swing a little bit back and forth and yep. we'll see what we'll see where that goes. But to your, your point earlier, Maurice, that, you know, being able to change your not change your mind yeah. is also a leadership competency, being able to change your mind, a new yeah. process, a new system, a new way of thinking, a new way of leading. I heard someone once say, most people will tell you, I've got 30 years of experience. No, you've got one year repeated 29 times. <laughs> and we probably ought to recognize that we're all going to have to reinvent ourselves. That was with me, right? I had, you know, I had, you know, a couple of decades that I just kept, you know, repeating and repeating and repeating. And it worked, did it not? It worked in the, in the late 90s and the 2000s and to the 10s. Right. That ain't the case anymore. You've got to yeah. reinvent your leadership style quarterly. That doesn't mean that you don't, you know, that you that you become that leader that just agrees with the last person that spoke to you charismatically in your office, right? Or yeah. you got to stand for something or fall for everything. Yeah. But the effective leader is going to be the one that is just unrecognizably nimble in yes. meeting the legitimate needs of their people while still making sure they're all delivering on the company's mission and purpose, and in most cases, profitability. Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. I want to fly kites this week. Well, okay. That's great. We're not in the kite business. And so let's talk about how you get to do that afterward. I mean, you get the point, right? I mean, yeah. although the power has shifted to the worker. Yeah. You still have to meet your quarterly revenue goal, fly as many kites as you want, Yeah. but there's no excuse for not meeting your quarterly goals. So let's unpack that and figure out how we're going to do that together. Yes. Yeah, it's funny because this, the, the saying that came up to mind, people have always told me this as an individual, is insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Yeah. And when you said you don't have 30 years experience, you have one year doing the same thing over and over and over again. Oh, that's another shift, man. That is, wow. Wow. I'm, somebody else. I'm sure someone smarter than me. I've never had an original idea in my thought. I'm <laughs> I credit everyone. Everyone gets credit for everything, not me. Well, and, and again, that's a part of the leadership vulnerability that you're talking about, right? It's your, it, it's sharing the wealth across the board. Yeah. Man, Scott, this is, I, I don't want to take all your time. I, I can literally the talk most to you. profound day of your life. Marie. It is. <laughs> it is one of them. I am not going to lie. This is one of them because it's so great to, 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 to hear this from someone that has seen it, but it, I've had a passion for this uh, for so long, but just to hear it, the frankness, 
and everything else. Yeah, go ahead. Let's, let's be clear. I was not always this wise. I'm 53. <laughs> I, learned, I, I learned this in my 20s and 30s and 40s, and I started applying it in my 50s, right? I mean, you know, I know the value of principles. I may not have always adopted them into my life when I needed to. So if you want to interview some of the people that I wrecked havoc on when I was a jerk leader, because I wasn't a bad person. I was a bad leader. You know, right. Harvard Business Review did a study a few years ago that the average age someone receives their first promotion into management is age 30. Oh, man. Yet the average oh. age that same person receives their first formal leadership development training, age 42. That's Wait, <laughs> Most leaders wow. are well-intended, but they're just, they're just masquerading as a leader while still being an individual contributor which is why organizations have got to stop promoting the top digital designer, the top nurse, the top salesperson, because rarely what, what makes you the best salesperson, does that make you the best sales leader? In fact, they're often inversely correlated. Yes. When you want to promote people to leaders, you promote people that take delight in the success of others, that yeah. they are comfortable and confident enough to see people raise above them, beyond them, earn more money than they do, that they take the delight in the success of others. Uh, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It means you just shouldn't be a leader. Like I should not be a commercial airline pilot <laughs> for damn sure. And that's, and that's such a, that, that really is, um, that's a big deal. What you just said to me is a really big deal because I've seen that before where sometimes people that get kind of tossed into leadership, like I said, whether say they're the best at whatever they do on a day-to-day -day basis, um, they may still have the mentality. Again, we go back kind of that scarcity mentality of, they fall into the stereotypes of what it means in our day and age, say pre-pandemic, of what it means to be a good leader, which a lot of times is top down. You know, if for, for, for me to win, you need to lose, you know, that type of thing. Right. And so many, I, I, the people that I've seen that have been put into, whether it's management or leadership that do the, the best job, so many times they say, the reason I do so well is because I don't, I don't, I never knew what those stereotypes were. It's almost yeah. like if you can sneak people into leadership that don't have those preconceived notions, <laughs> they typically do the best, <laughs> you know? It's, it's a lot of times it's the people like you said that just because I'm good at, at doing X, Y, Z, doesn't yeah. mean I'm gonna be a good leader. You yeah. know, Gary, when I first became a leader of people, I was the top sales producer in my division, right? You know, I, the boss sat me down and said, hey, great job, 14 quarters in a row, bam, bam, bam. We want to make you the leader of the team. I'm thinking, great, because that's the only way to get promoted and earn more money and have a title and have a, a track. What he should have done, by the way, he's a very dear friend of mine. He should have done. He should say, hey, Scott, I've been watching you for the last 16 quarters. You know, I'm going to draw a T-chart of all your strengths. And these are your strengths. Bam, 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 and bam. Mm -hmm. And we're thinking about interviewing you for a leadership position. And I want to have a high courage conversation with you. These nine strengths you have, you're going to have to leave seven of them behind if you were to become a leader, because these strings that make you a great individual producer will not only not make you a great leader, they'll probably destroy your career as a leader. Yeah. You're gonna have to actually literally stop doing the things that have brought you success in your career <laughs> overnight. <laughs> and by the way, on this side of the cheat T-chart, you're gonna have to do these 14 things of which maybe two you do well. You're gonna have to learn 12 new skills that you currently don't possess. It's okay. Is this something you want to move into? Or quite frankly, are you loving being an individual producer and should we create a career track for you? Oh, wait, one doesn't exist. Okay, so we need to create a career track where individual producers don't get lured into leadership roles. Because Gary, as you know, every company does the same thing. They promote their top producer, 
the top producer gets into leadership. Yep. They wreck it. Yep. And then now they have only one choice. It's to leave. No one steps back down into an individual producer. So now you've lost yep. your top producer and your leadership pipeline. Now, that's not the case for every job, yeah. every promotion. My, my, my role was like, you know, like a Richter scale, you know, two steps up and three <laughs> steps down. I was relieved of several promotions. I was unpromoted, as I've written in my book. I wished my leader, who had huge confidence in me, would have said, you do these things really well, and of them, literally some of your biggest strengths, you got to stop doing because this isn't going to work in this new role. Honestly, had they had that conversation with me, I would have said, okay, that's frustrating, but I understand that. Tell me more about that as opposed to taking those individual strengths in because a leader's job is to achieve results with and through other people. And I never, I never kind of knew that. I -hmm. thought my job was to turn them all into mini me versions of Scott Miller. (laughs) I spent years trying to break people from being themselves and turn them into me. Mm. I ended up in a few HR conversations as you can <laughs> I honestly never really understood. My job is not to turn them into me. My job is to achieve results with and through them and ignite their passion, ignite their genius. Now, mm. your listeners might think, well, I'm an idiot. No, I'm just a high producing individual producer that didn't really know what it meant to be a leader of people. Yeah. Scott, this is you're 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 absolutely slaying me here, man. <laughs> you, you just... I'm just repeating all the things I've been taught by other people that I've learned are true because I either got it wrong or got it really wrong and realized it wasn't working for me or for them. Oh, and those few times that we nail it are just so life changing. Yes. You know, yes. All of a sudden we see like, wait, wait, wait a minute. There's a different way of doing this. And it's usually so much better for everyone around us. Yeah. It's incredible, especially on the people leadership. People don't level. learn. Yeah, Gary, people don't learn from your successes. Mm-hmm. People learn from your messes. Yes. I don't have Gary's intellect. Mm-hmm. I don't have Maurice's personality or Ivy League education or trust fund or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so you learn more from people's mistakes. Oh, I cannot do that. Yes. I can avoid saying that. I can step around that metaphorical pothole, which is why the last half of my career is going to be talking about don't do the things I did poorly. And here's why I thought that way. Here's how I did it that way. Because quite frankly, leadership, half the game is just not screwing up. The other half, if you've got good intent and strong character, you're home free. Oh, man. This is, I I, want to go on and on and on and on and on. And I hope, I hope well, you'll consider. You're paying me a thousand bucks a minute, so go. Yeah. <laughs> this this is one of those situations that would be well worth it. <laughs> Wait, what? What? They're not. They're not. This is free. <laughs> I, I I I'm just hoping that as these things keep on coming about, that we can we can have some more discussions because this is this has just been altering i it, it has it has shifted a lot of thought in my mind uh, I've, I've a lot of principles i've already known but the way that you put it and the way that you've expanded it it just is as they say in the joe Hari window my blind spot it's it's obvious man and i i can't thank you enough for sharing the information this is unbelievable unbelievable hey, thank you for shining your spotlight onto me today i hope, <laughs> I hope your listeners and viewers found some of themselves in me 
and oh, said, yeah. yeah, I'm going to stop doing that or I'm going to think about that differently. Yeah. I'm just the result of people pouring into me and people believing in me more than I believed in myself at the time and taking me aside, like you said, and saying, hey, Scott, you have a blind spot on this. Yes. You got to stop saying that or you're looking at this wrong. I I've had a lot of ego intimates from people who loved me, who yes. cared enough about me yes. to risk me being offended or risk me, you know, not liking them in the moment to said, you know, Scott, I don't care if you like me or not. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to invest in you because I believe in you. And I've been the beneficiary of a massive number of mentors. And so if I can give back some on the second side of my journey, then hopefully that will add some value. Thank you.